What I'm about to say is probably old hat for some of you. It's probably philosophy 101 kind of stuff that you've, you've wrestled with and chewed on for a while. For some of you, it might sound a bit more scandalous. Uh, but what I would argue is this. Events, events in the world are not self-interpreting. Um, events are, at bottom... A bunch of atoms, molecules, cells, bodies kind of slamming into one another in time, right? That's what they are, a sequence of things happening in the world in time. But they don't confer meaning on themselves. We interpret their meaning with respect to their context and our worldviews and a host of other things. Often people can agree on the sequential order of something that happened. They can agree on the details of, yes, this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and then this happened, and this happened. Not always do they agree, but often they can. But it's often quite difficult to get people to agree on the what it means piece, the interpretation of that event. Take any, any piece of international news that sort of rises to the front of our Facebook feeds and our news apps and all that, um, any piece of international news, by and large, you know, there may be some de different details in the reporting, but by and large, there's agreement. This thing happened. There's not a whole lot of controversy about that. But what follows soon after is a flood of opinion pieces, right? You've got your op-eds and your think pieces and all the stuff with people contributing their take on this is what this means. This is what it means for you. This is what it means for me. This is what it means for this group of people or that group of people. This is what it means for this group of people. This is how it's bad for this group of people, and on and on and on. Events don't interpret themselves. The meaning is not always clear in the event itself, but rather they must be interpreted. And the events of the day of Pentecost that we learned about last week in Acts chapter 2, they illustrate this perfectly. What happened that day? Do you remember? The apostles, the disciples, all the disciples are gathered together in a house. And this giant noise, like a violent rushing wind, splashes into the room. And evidently they're driven out of the house and out perhaps to the temple court. Tongues like fire come resting on their heads. They're, we're told that the Holy Spirit is filling up each of these men and women. We're told that prophetic speech and languages unknown to the authors are being uttered so that these, these Christians are saying things and it's being understood in the languages of people that these speakers would have no ability to know. And the onlookers are sitting here going, whoa, how would this group of Galileans, this group of Jews, know this language or this language or this language? Something amazing happened that day. But what did it mean? What did it mean? Even in the scriptures, we get a smattering of different responses. If you look at, uh, at verse 12, chapter 2, it says, All were first amazed. There were some who were responding with amazement. They, they looked on and they maybe didn't understand what was happening, but, but they were blown away. They knew that something awe-inspiring was happening, something out of the ordinary, and perhaps they were driven to curiosity because of it. But that wasn't the only response. The very next phrase there, and perplexed. Some were just confused. They were, they were perplexed. They had no category for this kind of thing. 
They were just, they just saw chaos and thought, I have no idea. This does not fit anywhere in my system of things that happen. There's nowhere to put this. There was confusion. And then we see a third response in verse 12 or 13. Others responded with mockery. See, they thought they did have a handle on it. They said, we've seen this before. They accused the early Christians of being drunk. They're filled with new wine, they said. They said, oh, I've, I've seen this before. I've been outside the bar at 2 a.m. when everybody's spilling out into the street. I've seen this kind of chaos. That's what's happening. So which is it? What did the events of Pentecost mean? What did this phenomena mean? Well, amidst all the power and the excitement and the confusion and the chaos, Peter... He stands up. Verse 14, he stands with, standing with the eleven, Peter lifts up his voice, and he addressed them. And he begins with a joke. Sometimes we, are, we read our Bible so dryly, we kind of miss this kind of stuff. But see what Peter says here? He says, For these men of, men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, it's, the only, it's only the third hour of the day. It's 9 a.m. What Peter's implying is almost like, we, you don't get drunk at 9 a.m. That comes later. Come on, guys, stay with me. Peter's not advocating drunkenness, but he's being wry with them as they were being wry with the early Christians. He begins with a joke. He says, no, it's not drunkenness that you see. Well, then what is it, Peter? What is it? If Pentecost marked the entrance of the Holy Spirit of God into the people of God in a historically unique way for the first time, which it did, and if on this day, as Josh rightfully taught us, the Christian church was birthed, the church and its mission were taken up on this particular day, then what Peter's about to deliver is actually the first Christian sermon ever preached. Did you know that? It's the first Christian sermon of course, Jesus preached sermons. Of course, prophets in the Old Testament preached sermons before him. But this is the first, not Christ's sermon, but Christian's sermon. The followers after him and filled up and empowered with his Holy Spirit and commissioned with his authority to go and to preach the good news. This is the first time right here. So what does Peter do? Well, the whole sermon's recorded in verses 14 through 36. Uh, it's structured around three major Old Testament quotes. He quotes Joel 2, which is what we're going to look at today. He quotes Psalm 16, and he quotes Psalm 110. He has three texts. He's not trying to lean into his own authority, but he points back to the Hebrew Scriptures to say, here is what happened and here's what it means. All told, you can read this sermon in under two minutes, if you just read through it. Uh, at Door of Hope, we're going to cover it in two weeks, if that teaches you anything about our efficiency and skill. Uh, so we'll, we'll cover the first section today. So this week, it's verses 14 through 21. Read them with me. If you have your Bible, Acts 2, 14. We'll start over. But Peter, standing with the eleven, he lifted up his voice and he addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. And give ear to my words. 
For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And I quote, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's how it begins. So for Peter, he sees these responses, confusion, amazement, mockery, Where is he going to get his answer? Well, amazingly, he's super familiar with his Old Testament. And he knows the prophecy of Joel, a small little book amidst the prophets. And he remembers what Joel had spoken about something like this. And not only does he remember it, but he can quote it at length on the spot. That's a bit convicting. It's a bit convicting for me. Joel is going to derive the meaning, the meaning, the interpretation of this event from the scriptures. He's going to see, has God declared anything about this? And if so, then that is what it is. That's what I believe. So let's look into this for a second. Here is the side-by-side comparison of the text from Joel and the text from Acts 2. Anybody notice anything kind of odd about this? Say it out loud. They're different. What the heck? What's going on? These are the ESV translations of Joel 2 and Acts 2. It's the same passage, clearly the passage that Peter is quoting, but you see some key changes. I've marked the most startling ones uh, in yellow. So I think we have to deal with this before we move on. Number one, two things to consider. Number one, number one, did you know, this is actually really cool and encouraging to me. When the early Christians... When the Christians of the New Testament quote the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, they don't actually quote the the Hebrew Bible. What they quote is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible called the Septuagint. To the point where some scholars are arguing that actually this Greek translation was the Bible for the early church. So some of the you know, you'll notice some minor differences in the way things are phrased and ordered, and what that is the result of is simply a Hebrew text being translated into a Greek text and then quoted. You're going to just see a slight difference there. And so in our English, we have an English translation from the Hebrew, and then we have an English translation from the Greek there. And there you go. There's some slightly different wording. That shouldn't be too concerning. Coincidentally, I think that's actually really encouraging for us with our English Bibles, right? Because sometimes we're really skeptical about translation, and sometimes you hear people try to argue, like, I mean... None of us know Greek or Hebrew. How could we have any confidence that we're, you know, this is just, we're just dealing with translations of translations, et cetera, et cetera. And the Bible itself actually has a really high view of translation. Translation is not uh, to be despised or to be, we're not to be suspicious of it, although, of course, there are different translation philosophies and different strengths and weaknesses with each. But we actually can gain some confidence that, no, the Bible is meant to be translated into multiple languages. In fact, Peter preaches the first sermon out of a translation. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. 
and just confirms the, the, the message to me that the gospel is unique amongst world religions and that it's not isolated to a particular people group. It's not nationalistic. It's meant for everyone. Translate the scriptures. Share them everywhere. So that's part one. But some of this is like blatant addition or changing. So I just want to look real quick at the, the most important one, which is this top line. Joel says this stuff is going to come to pass afterwards. Peter says this stuff is going to happen in the last days. Now that seems a little problematic because Peter's hinging, going to hinge a whole argument about this kind of being the end times, this is end times kind of stuff, and Joel doesn't use that language. So what are you doing, Peter? And this is just a Bible study tip for you guys. Anytime you see a New Testament author quoting an Old Testament author, you need to look up the reference. Usually your Bible will have that in a marginal note or something. And go read that Old Testament passage. You read the passage, and it's confusing. So what do you do then? You need to read the context. Maybe the, the chapter. Maybe just the paragraph. Whatever it may be. If you're still confused, read the book. Now, it's going to take a while, I, I, I admit. But that's what you need to do. So what's going on in Joel? Well, let's just, it's actually really simple. Give me the next slide. Joel is about, it, it was written probably during the return from exile after Jerusalem was rebuilt. And Joel is prophesying to the people of Israel. He's saying, look, what you, we just experienced this massive plague. Locusts have come and destroyed our land. And he's offering them a prophecy of hope. He's saying, actually, God is not going to leave us in this destruction, but he's going to restore our fields. He's going to restore our crops. Things are going to return to blessing. That's what the first part of Joel is about. But then, this comes. It shall come to pass afterward. So he starts talking about another day of the Lord's blessing. And we've, we've heard this metaphor before. Tim used to share it with us, where you see like prophecy like a, a, like a mountain range. And they all share meaning, but each one is a bit further and more of a deeper fulfillment of what came before. And so it's kind of like that. Joel's saying, there's going to be a near day when I restore your fortunes. The land's going to be returned. But afterward, something else is going to happen. And he's talking about this thing where the Spirit's poured out in those days. And then he gives us a second time marker before the great and awesome day of the Lord, which could be none other than the final day of judgment for Joel. We have a bit more of this theology fleshed out in the New Testament. It's the day of Christ's return, the day when Christ is going to come and put all things right, the final day of the Lord. So what Joel is saying is that there's a, there's a, near, a near fulfillment, there's near prophecy I'm, I'm preaching, but then there's this, thi there's this range of time leading up to the great day of the Lord where the spirit thing is going to happen. And then if you know your broader theology, you know that what he's talking about is the age we live in, the last days, the last age before the return of Jesus. So back to the comparison. So what we see here is that Peter is actually just providing a bit of an explanatory sort of amplification of Joel. He hasn't twisted or distorted the text. He's actually helped us understand how this passage fits in with what came before. It's not simply afterward, because that's kind of contextless, but it's in the last days. And he mentions, God declares, just again, a little insertion, reminding people that Joel's prophecy was on behalf of God. He repeats the emphasis that they shall prophesy down there. 
he adds above to the phrase of heaven, below to earth, science. So pretty minor, just intensification and uh, just kind of, kind of elaborating and sort of um, adding emphasis to Joel. Fair enough? So I'd say Peter is actually providing a nice little kind of almost commentary uh, helping his hearers understand what Joel was talking about for those who maybe were less familiar. Pretty cool. Okay, we're done with the Bible nerdery. We can move on. Um, so what is this text actually about? Well, we're going to leave Joel and we're just going to focus on Acts because although Peter quoted Joel, Joel was inspired by the Holy Spirit just as any other scripture was. So was the text of Luke. I mean, sorry, Acts. Recorded by Luke, spoken by Peter. This too is its own spirit-inspired scripture and it's the one we're looking at today. So we're just going to deal with the Acts text. So I see three main points. I see three. They're simple, um, but they're profound from this, from this quotation of Joel. Number one, number one, the Spirit has been poured out without discrimination, just like Joel and just like Jesus said it would be. That's verses 17 and 18. So there's a couple elements to this. Number one, the baptism of the Spirit has come and it was unique in history, and it is unique in history. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was active. He was doing things, and he would come upon people, but this is really important. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would come upon people for a limited time and a limited purpose. You'd see the Spirit come on a king. He'd come on David, and he'd be the anointed king. He would be granted wisdom and favor, and things are going well, and then something would happen, and the Spirit would depart. You see this on a prophet. The Spirit would come upon a prophet and he would declare powerfully the word of God and the Spirit would leave. This, the Spirit would come upon people for a limited time and a limited purpose. And what Pentecost marked is a whole new thing. What we have here is all of the believers that are present being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And after this moment, the trend would be at the moment of conversion, people would receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit where the Spirit of God that used to dwell in a physical temple in Jerusalem would come and dwell in the physical temple inside of you and inside of me. And it would not leave. He would not leave. This is profound, guys. This is profound. So what we're witnessing here is a new thing where the Spirit shall be poured out on all flesh without discrimination. Any who would trust Christ. I think it's important to ask a sidebar here. Sidebar question. Should we expect to see the events of Pentecost or similar things on a regular basis? It's a really important question. Here's what I would say. Yes and no. Here's the yes. The same Holy Spirit that filled the disciples in this story is the same one who now resides inside of you. The same Spirit who gave these believers the gift of prophecy and tongues in this moment. We, as we read through the New Testament, we see the Spirit doesn't just give prophecy and tongues, but a whole range of spiritual gifts to every single believer. And, they, and he distributes them according to his wisdom. And they're all important. 
And they all exist to make this community of Christians built up together as we pursue Christ-likeness. So, Paul talks about things that we see clearly at Pentecost. He talks about the gift of tongues. He talks about the gift of prophecy. It's kind of speech, like, like miraculous speech kind of gifts. And then he talks about things as mundane, seemingly mundane, as the gift of administration. And for us, we often have this hierarchy where we're like, ah, oh, okay, I think God maybe has given me the gift of administration, but that's lame. <laughs> I want to be the, I want the gift of preaching, or I want the gift of tongues, or I want the gift of healing. Wouldn't that be amazing? And what Corinthians reminds us again and again is that, no, we are all, the gifts have been given according to God's wisdom. They're all valuable. And we don't begrudge God for how he has or hasn't gifted us. But we find out what ours are and we contribute them to the body that it might be built up. So in that sense, and, I, uh, and this is exactly what Josh would say, there is no indication in the scriptures that God has halted spiritual gifts we don't believe there's any indication that he's halted particular spiritual gifts. We don't think that he has declared he's done using tongues or using prophecy or using these ones that we'd consider more miraculous. So that's my yes. Yes, we're open to this. We're open to this. And it's incumbent on all of us to figure out how, if you're a believer, how has God gifted you? And are you contributing that to the body, in your community group, in our church as a whole? But here's the no. It's really important that we get this, get this straight, that although it might seem like it, the miraculous is not the everyday, even in the Bible. So John Stott argues, and I think he's right, that clusters of miracles really happen at four points in redemptive history. Moses, at the giving of the law, there's all kinds, I mean, you guys have read those stories, there's all kinds of dramatic signs of, of crazy things being done. The parting of the Red Sea, a staff being turned into a snake, the plagues, all this wild stuff to confirm the new thing that God was about to do in the giving of the law, the burning bush, all this crazy stuff. That's one big cluster. The prophet specifically kicking off with Elijah and Elisha. Miraculous events signifying that God is now speaking through this kind of fringe group of people called the prophets, these wild characters who are coming to indict the kingdom for not living up to uh, it's, it's covenant with the Lord. Another cluster of miracles. What comes next is Jesus. Jesus' ministry. The Son of God is now living in human flesh, in human history, and he's proving that with miracles. His ministry, of course, we've all read tons of stories about Jesus acting miraculously. And then fourth, what's the fourth one? The birth of the church the birth of the church. And the book of Acts specifically records all kinds of miraculous events. And what's interesting is you have Pentecost here in Jerusalem, but then we're going to see as we work through the book all these little mini Pentecosts happening too. When the gospel comes freshly to a new people group, there will be like almost a mini expression of supernatural occurrence confirming like, whoa, the gospel has now gone out to this group of people. And the Jewish Christians who started this thing are like, whoa, I did not expect that. I did not see that coming. But it's undeniable. It's confirmation, miraculous confirmation. So does that make sense? So I'm not saying that there are no miracles between these major clusters. There are, plainly. But even when you read the scriptures, it's not like every single page has a miracle on it. And it's also even more stark when you realize that we're covering thousands of years of history here. The book of Acts, 20, 
uh, 28 chapters um, covers 30 plus years. So even realizing that, all this stuff isn't happening within a week or two. So we'll stop there. Should we expect this miraculous stuff of Pentecost today in 2017 in Portland, Oregon? I don't know. I think we need to be open to it. I think we need to seek the fullness of what God would have for us here. But I think we also can recognize his activity is in many ways mysterious. Coincidentally, for those of you that follow international missions, it is not uncommon to hear about almost Pentecost-esque movements happening when the gospel goes to a new people group. Right now we're hearing, Josh has shared some of this, we're hearing incredible stories of God, uh, of Jesus appearing to Muslims in dreams and visions in extremely hard-to-reach areas. We're hearing revivals breaking out in places accompanied with miraculous signs. And so, I don't know, that seems to be the pattern of God when he wants to authenticate his gospel to a new place. So, there's a lot of freedom in this, but I think that's helpful background. Here's the main point. The Spirit has now been poured out on all flesh without discrimination. And you see the groups of people that Joel and that Peter highlight? Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your sons and your daughters. So what he's specifically talking about is men and women. Whereas in this culture, it would have been assumed that men are the ones who are going to carry the mantle. They're the ones that are going to be doing the real ministry. Even as far back as Joel, we see that that is not God's intention, but it's to be poured out on men and women, our sons and daughters. Young men shall see visions, old men shall dream dreams. Similarly, the young were often despised. No, God's not going to work through some, some young person. But Joel and now Peter confirm, no, the Spirit too has been poured out on even the young. Not only the old and wise, but the young and sometimes foolish have received the Spirit of God as well. Even on my male servants and female servants, even the serving class, the Spirit of God has been poured out. So if you fall in the lowest kind of stratosphere of society, for you too, the Spirit has been poured out. So there's a big implication here, and you guys need to get this. I need to get this. No matter who you are, no matter who you are, if you have trusted Jesus, you've been indwelt with his Holy Spirit. You've been given power over sin. You've been given power to grow into Christ's likeness. You've been gifted for the building up of the church. And you have been given power to minister boldly in the gospel, no matter who you are. You hear that? You see that? Maybe you're an artist. Maybe you're an artist and you feel like you've constantly been toiling, just toiling away at your craft. You feel like money has gotten tight. You feel like perhaps your friends have, are, have been more like prudent financially and they've got their nine to five jobs and you feel utterly on the sidelines and like people are so quietly judging you, like get a job, hippie, that kind of thing. You need to hear that for you too, the spirit has been poured out. Maybe you're the opposite. 
Maybe you work a nine-to-five business job, and in a city like Portland, you feel like everyone's kind of like judging you, like, oh, that's not really that cool, it's not really that meaningful, you know, why don't you do something with your life, old man? You need to hear that for you too, on you too, the Spirit has been poured out. I hate having to say this, but we have to say it. Are you a woman? Have you been made either implicitly or explicitly to feel like a second-class citizen in the mission of God to his world? You need to hear dramatically right now that the Spirit has been poured out on you too. Are you a stay-at-home mom? Do you feel that your time is just utterly swallowed up with taking care of your kids and like as just as you can get the house clean, it's off to the next thing and just like can't get ahead, feel utterly sidelined. The Spirit has been poured out on you too. Maybe you're a stay-at-home dad. Maybe you're physically sick or disabled. Maybe you're mentally sick or disabled. The Spirit has been poured out on you too if you're in Christ. Are you single? Do you feel like the rest of the church looks on you with suspicion? Like, when is this person going to mature and find a spouse, join the real inner circle of the church? I know some of you feel that way. What Joel and what Peter would declare to you is that you too have had the Spirit poured out on you. You're not second class. You're not second class one bit. Maybe you're married, and maybe you have your spouse, and there's conflict, and there's so many things to figure out and work out, and you feel like it's just drained all of your marginal time, and everything is just going to, trying to keep this frail relationship together as two people with sinful souls are trying to figure out how to covenant together. You need to know that you too have had the Spirit poured out on you. And we could go on and on, but hear, hear what this text says. All flesh, the young and the old. Maybe you're old. Maybe you feel like Door of Hope is a young person's church. There's no place for me to serve or to lead. I'm not wanted here. No one values my wisdom. This text declares the Spirit has been poured out on you too. You too. After last week, it was interesting. Uh, I praise the Lord for kind of the Josh's intuition and just trusting the Spirit to kind of create that moment at the end of service last week. Uh, but it was interesting to hear from some people who, who, on the backside of it, actually felt really discouraged. Uh, and now hear this, I, I praise the Lord for every instance and every person who felt like, whoa, like I encountered God in a way I hadn't previously. I felt tangibly the experience of the Spirit in my life. We are thankful for that, and that is a beautiful thing. So, so hear that. But there were others of you who were asking a different question on the other side of it. You were asking, well, I didn't feel anything. <laughs> I didn't feel a thing. What does that mean for me? Do I have the Holy Spirit? Do, am I even saved? If all these people are experiencing this thing, does that mean that my salvation isn't real? And I just feel like we need to take a moment to remember, though God does work directly and supernaturally and miraculously, 
The scriptures are clear on what the fruit of the Spirit in one's life actually is. You know that text? Galatians? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. In Ephesians 5, when Paul commands the Ephesian church to be filled with the Spirit, what does he say the evidence is? You'll sing songs and hymns, address one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. That you'll make, sing and make melody to the Lord with your heart. He says, what's the third one? Anybody remember? Give thankfulness always and for everything to God our Father in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. And then lastly, submitting to one another out of, Christ, out of reverence for Christ. That is what it means to be in daily contact with the Spirit. If we boil all that stuff down, Christ-likeness. That is your evidence. So some of you, I hope it's an encouragement to you. If you feel like, I didn't have the butterflies last Sunday. I didn't feel anything. I was confused. I, I felt uncomfortable or self-conscious. Before you ask the question, does this mean I'm not a Christian or something? You just need to answer two things. What do you say about Jesus? Is he your Lord? And is he at work in your life? And I hope that's encouraging to you in this moment. Point number two. Point number two sounds a bit more ominous. But I believe Joel and then Peter are saying that the last days are here. The last days are here. Let's read this verse together. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall turn to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. We already talked about this for a moment, but what the biblical authors have identified for us is that we are in the last chapter of salvation history. There is no major event to come before Jesus returns to put all things right. We're not waiting for another, like, prophet to come on the scene. We're not waiting for some other act of revelation. We're not waiting for a third biblical testament to be written. We just await Jesus' return. And what that means is that we are in the last days, according to the scripture. So for us, Door of Hope, this is a call to urgency. It's a call to urgency. However you understand the timeline of Genesis 1 and God's crea creation of the world and the universe and people, however you understand that, I think we could all agree that human history has been one long and winding road spanning a long, long time. But we have entered the very last act before Jesus returns. That's not the end of the story, of course. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it at the end of the last battle, if you've read that. He talks about, after all this history, and uh, like Narnia is entering a phase where all sin has been dealt with, and we're going to enter the glorious phase where essentially Aslan does what God does at the end of the Bible. He wipes away every tear. He recreates the world. The world is once again perfect. He says that everything that came before was just the first line of the first page of the endless story that God is writing. And that's true. We have eternity future ahead of us. But in terms of this era, the era of humanity's fall and redemption, we are in the very last days of it. Did you know that? Did you know that? 
Our mission, proclaim the good news of Jesus and teaching people to follow him. Our time is short. How are you spending your time? How am I spending my time? Let's talk about a day in the life. I just want to hear if this sounds familiar to any of you. It, it certainly does for me because most of it's pulled from days I've lived. But you wake up. You wake up. You've got your alarm set early, maybe 6 a.m. You're going to get up and get, get some time with the Lord and read your Bible. You're going to pray, maybe journal or something. But the alarm goes off, and you stayed up a little bit late last night watching Netflix, so you just snooze it a couple times. You snooze it a couple times, and then you finally get up. You go, okay, well, I still have like 20 minutes. I can, I can do this. I can start my day with the Lord. That sounds great. You finally get your cup of coffee. You get in your chair. You're ready to go, and then the baby starts crying. And then you go, well, I could either let my husband or my wife just deal with that by themselves, or I could be a loving spouse and go help as well. So you do. You help with the baby. And that's the right decision, by the way. <laughs> then, you know, you, by the time you get the kids settled down, you're trying to have some family. Oh, gosh, it's time to go to work. Okay, so you head to work. Head to work, and you're, you're seated next to, your desk is next to, like, the most awkward, annoying person in the office. It just derails you constantly, distracts you from your work. And so your time, uh, at this time, you decide, okay, I need my headphones. I have my headphones. My boss is okay with the headphones, so I'm just going to headphone up and make sure people know I don't want to talk to them. So you work. Maybe that same person, maybe someone else invites you to lunch, but, you know, you're feeling a little burnt out, overextended. So you say, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to eat here. I brought my own lunch. Which can, of course, there's nothing wrong with bringing your own lunch. Hear that. But... So you just hang out by yourself and maybe fire up some YouTube videos on your iPad or something. And just watch videos through lunch. The rest of the day comes. You continue to isolate, keep yourself from distraction, finish the day. You get home. The kids are going crazy. Your spouse is trying to wrangle them. You try to wrangle them. Like 30 seconds pass, and now it's like 8.30 p.m. And somehow that's happened, and the day is, the day is over. You have to clean up the mess, get everything reset just for your kids to destroy the next morning again. Um, and finally, at 9 p.m., you and your spouse, you plop down on the couch, or you, if you're single by yourself, you plop down on the couch after whatever you've had going on, and it's like, I just need to watch a little Netflix just to decompress, just a little bit. I'm way behind on the show that everybody's talking about. If I don't watch these episodes, I'm not going to be able to have the conversation. Someone's going to spoil it for me the next day. I, I, I can't have that happen. So you watch the show, but it's really addictive. Every show ends with a cliffhanger ending now. So you're like, I got well, what's going to happen next? One more episode? One more episode? Let's do it. You watch the next one. Okay, now it's 1130. And you're like, oh, man, I'm supposed to get up at 6 in the morning to read my Bible. We'll see what happens. Anybody have that day? I've had that day. I've that day a lot. Now hear me. There's nothing wrong. In fact, it's, we're commanded to serve our families, every one of us. There's nothing wrong with needing to eliminate distraction and focus at work. There's nothing wrong with watching a show. 
There's no helping the chaos of children and bedtime. But, but, did you know the last days are here? Did you know that it could be, it could be that that time at work is you spent working hard to God's glory and for the good of your employer and the good of your, of your world, hopefully, whatever you're doing, that each time that you could be drowning out a coworker could be a time for building relationship, earning trust, communicating love that that person might come to know, just be a bit closer to coming to know the Lord Jesus. Did you know that time with our kids is not simply um, a rat race of getting them from one bit of nutrition to the next while cleaning up messes, but it's actually a chance to steward their hearts that by your love for them, they might know something about the King of Glory himself. And did you know that the late hours of the night spent cycling through YouTube videos and Netflix episodes could be spent pouring into your spouse or your roommate or your best friend or whatever and processing life together instead preparing one another to go into the next day as God's chosen ambassador in this world. The last days are here. And are we watching more Netflix than spending time with people? Are we spending more time interacting online than in person? I don't know. But I know I'm guilty of every inch of what I just said but we have the opportunity instead to be loving people, serving people, and convincing people that the return of Jesus is good news for them and that it's happening and that it's soon. And that all these people that we love, even, even the ones that annoy us, they too are loved by God more than we could ever imagine. And we're wasting opportunities to declare and to show his love for them to them. And that's a shame, because the last days are here. Sidebar, last sidebar. What about the sun turned to darkness, the moon to blood, blood and fire and vapor of smoke? I have no idea. Let's just move on. <laughs> no, no, scholars, scholars are divided, of course, as they are on everything. Um, and there are some good options. Some think that, some think that uh, this, you know, we're told in the gospel accounts that when Jesus died, that the sun went dark during the day. Um, so maybe this is a reference to that. Um, maybe there was some other unrecorded sort of astrological phenomena that, that we, d we don't know about. Um, interestingly, we do know that there was a full solar eclipse in AD 29, which may have been the year that Jesus died, although it probably wasn't the month, didn't happen the month that he died. Just weird, interesting stuff. I don't know. I, I, of course, no one knows for sure. What I lean toward is that these events are still future. Remember, he's talking about a period that's the last days, but leading up to the day of the Lord. So really, this stuff is stuff that could happen at any point uh, between now and the Lord's return. These are classic apocalyptic images from apocalyptic literature um, kind of like mixed in with sort of end of the world kind of imagery. And so my hunch is that this is stuff that's still future 
and that whatever these images mean, they are going to more closely anticipate the return of Jesus. But I don't know. But I felt like we needed to address that. There you go. So last thought. Last thought. Point three. And don't miss it. Point three is a simple one. Verse 21. He says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The point Jesus saves. The Spirit's been poured out. The last days are here. And Jesus saves. Door of hope. So call upon the name of the Lord. What Joel saw dimly, Joel didn't know the name Jesus. Joel, inspired by God though he was, he had this vague idea of Messiah and what he might be like and the fact that this is good news for God's restoration and finalization of his plan. But now Peter has the privilege of being on the other side of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And he can say, I now know what Joel didn't. I know that the name of the Lord that we call on, that anyone can call on to be saved, is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. And that's what the rest of Peter's sermon is going to explain to us. So do you know Jesus? If you do, this is a call to turn deeper into him. It's a call to look back on the cross that declares it is finished. That your righteousness before God has been accomplished by him. And it's, an, it's a call to rest in him. It's also a call to, let, to learn to let his grace fuel your activity. We're not meant to be saved and to sit around. We're meant to be saved and then spurred on to obedience, faithfulness, the proclamation of his gospel, the serving and the loving of our neighbors, the worship of our king. And so as we wrap up here in a minute, I just ask that you try to let this moment, this worship service, be a sincere expression of turning into Jesus, of gazing upon him and what he's done for you and responding accordingly as we sing together. Do you not know Jesus? Acts 2 has made a claim. It's made a historical claim about something wild that happened. (laughs) Wild that happened 2,000 years ago, just about. The miraculous was seen, that there were eyewitnesses, that somehow this little group of people who thought that this man had died and then rose from the grave, it somehow gained enough traction to become one of the dominant, or the dominant religion in the world. And that on this day, there was a sound like wind, tongues like fire, speech that was prophetic and supernatural. And that it wasn't for itself, but it was to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the claim. That's what the Bible claims. And if you don't know him, you've now heard that claim and you have to respond to it. And so we just invite you. What the Bible proclaims again and again is no matter your background, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've declared, no matter the life you've lived, no matter your age, no matter your sex, no matter your job, no matter your lot in life, Jesus says, come. He says, come to me, all all who are weary, and I will give you rest. For anyone who 
who fears death, wondering what is, what am I going to find out about the nature of reality and the existence of a god or gods? He declares. If you're wondering, what have I done enough good to outweigh the bad? Was I a good enough person to stand before whatever God may or may not be there one day? Jesus says, come to me and find rest. For I declare, it is finished. My righteousness is given to you. And your shortcomings were dealt with me on the cross. So we invite you, if you've never trusted Jesus, maybe today's not the day. Or maybe it is. Maybe you feel him tugging at your heart. You don't even know what it means to trust a Jesus, but here shortly we're going to have people around the room praying on the sides, available. They'll have lanyards around their necks. You can go and process. Say, I don't know, but I'm feeling drawn to this stuff. What's next? Jesus says, come. And you too would receive his spirit, be gifted by him, begin to be changed by him. And for you too, the idea that we are in the last days before Jesus comes and deals with all evil, sin, and injustice, that can be good news for you too. It is good news.